0: er en to ro vilje dore so dron a kes <laughs> pritlet dem hin am is Dear friends, I'm honoured to have been invited to deliver the 2023 Geary Lecture, and I'm delighted, absolutely, as I have just said, to be in a position to host the event here in Oris, Rukteron. and I so welcome you all, be it from the Economic Research Institute, and I want to thank the Chairman for his gracious comments just, just now, and indeed the Director, And all of you are welcome, not just from the Institute, from the other sites of research or teaching in sociology and economics across the third-level sector. As you have just heard, uh, Dr. Rygeary, and I'm so pleased that his relations are able to be with us this afternoon, after whom this lecture series is named, is regarded as perhaps the most eminent Irish statistician of the 20th century. And as you have just heard from the chairman, he was the first director of the Economic and Research Institute. And before that, he had taken up a post as head of the National Accounts Branch of the United Nations in New York from 1957 to 1960, as well as being, of course, as you have heard, being a founding member of the Central Statistics Office. And it is so fitting that uh, this lecture, this annual lecture, is named in his honor. Over the past 63 years, the ESRI has established a long and significant history of social science research, research that has been influential in both economic and social policy in this country. It is notable that at its inception in 1960, thanks mainly to a Ford Foundation grant of $280,000 to fund the new institute for its first five years, the think tank was originally known as the Economic Research Institute, or as some of us would remember, the ERI. A decisive influence on setting up the ERI was Dr TK Whitaker, then Secretary of the Department of Finance, who in the course of preparing the major study, Economic Development, published in May 1958, itself an input into the Programme for Economic Expansion, 1958 to 1963 had identified the need for research on the Irish economy. The absence of sociological research within the institute's name was addressed when a social research committee was established under the under the uh, auspices of the Institute of Public Administration in 1963. This committee approached Dr. Henning Fries then director of the Danish National Institute for Social Research, who completed a report recommending that a social research institute be established and amalgamated with the Economic Research Institute to form an economic and social research institute supported by the establishment of a field survey unit within the institute. While it was a far-sighted proposal for which we should be grateful, the lack of debate on the freeze Report's recommendation is notable, and the implications of its funding model for social research would lead over time to complications and impediments for those engaged in such research outside the Institute. The SRI recognised early the value of social research. The appointment of Dr Damien Hannan, who would spearhead such research, was a testament to this. He became a research professor in the SRI from 1967 until his retirement in 2000, apart from a period as professor of sociology in University College Cork from 1971 until 1976, when he had many distinguished students. (laughs) Damien Hannan is a respected friend of mine, published extensively during his time at the Institute, on education and labour market integration, in both Irish and international journals and books. He played a leading role in the development of sociology as a discipline in Ireland. And I can well imagine his influence on the choice of two of the leading sociologists of the time, indeed of the decades, to give the Geary Lecture, Alvin W. Gouldner, author of The Coming Crisis of Western Sociology in 1970, gave the 7th Geary Lecture in 1974. And Peter Berger, everyone knows as an author of Invitation to Sociology among many books, gave the 14th Lecture in 1981. Gullner on Objectivity, Berger on Secularisation. Damien Hannan's work, mostly empirical, regularly survey based, was a reflection of his own early immersion in the Illinois School of Sociology of his time. His PhD drawing on quantitative work presented admission Michigan State University and his research focus on emigration produced what is one of the classic studies of emigration from Ireland in the 1960s, Rural Exodus, a study of the forces influencing the large-scale migration of Irish rural youth. Inequality was a major focus of Damien Hannan's work as was the theme of community. Damien and I often debated the role of cooperative behavior in Irish life as either normative expression, as he would have it, or alternatively, as an elaborate system of reciprocities, as I provocatively suggested to him. Sociology, a field in which I trained and which I subsequently taught at what was University College Galway, was just emerging as a subject in the 1960s. However, my lecture this afternoon uh, will touch on some aspects of the evolution of the relationship between sociology and economics in the 60s and 70s, and some of the consequences of such an evolution for policy, practice, and scholarship, and how perhaps the national discipline Economics came to grow to prominence among the policy-making community, while sociology would be so much less referred to by policy-makers and, indeed, quite ignored. Indeed, sociology in the decade of the 60s came to be viewed by some commentators, I take the contemporary expressions, as soft and even woolly, Sociology as a taught subject in Ireland had come out of the philosophy departments and had frequently been taught as social ethics. Economics, on the other hand, well regarded in modernization theory and central to development, was viewed as hard, grounded, and having a realizable functionalist purpose. Sociology from its foundation was, and perhaps still is in some circles, viewed as not just a critical scholarship, but as an inherently subversive discipline, as it was born out of three 19th century revolutions, the development of modern science, the emergence of democratic forms of government, and the Industrial Revolution. Perhaps it is unsurprising then, given its radical genesis, its critical capacity, that over the decades, sociology would become underfunded in a society that was conservative, a prevailing ethos that did not recognize inequality, or if it did, did not find it unacceptable, a state that had a stated materialist development project. That project stressed adjustment rather than structural engagement with issues such as inequality. Economics, on the other hand, particularly in its more applied forms of economic theory, policy, and practice drawing on neoclassical and neoliberal economics, could become hegemonic. And thus would be the more likely beneficiary of research funds in what was a utilitarian atmosphere within an unquestioned modernization model that defined development. Economics, as a formation of intellectual thought also, had a more comfortable arrival in state bureaucratic practice particularly after 1938. Sociologists' experience so many decades later would be quite different. For example, the combat poverty programmes saw practising sociologists being perceived in their advocacy as unwelcome critics of a state that was, quote, trying its best. The eventual abolition of the Combat Poverty Agency in 2008 during austerity cutbacks was an example of the silencing of such funded social research as might be critical of state policies. The sidelining of sociological research and sociological scholarship and the epistemology upon which it was based, facilitated a discourse of economics that could more easily eschew the normative. This was particularly so in the United States, over-influenced as it was and as it became by Heiketist perspectives, which would lead, of course, to the fundamental to the Friedmanist crudities of the Chicago school. Such an orientation was assisted by a public discourse that concentrated on commodification and consumption, a rejection of structuralism, and indeed the reduction of the definition of the concept of freedom to a lateral laissez-faire version that championed deregulation and privatisation, reduced the human experience to one of materiality, and human value to consumption, acquisitiveness, and comparisons and evaluations of net worth. Such an emphasis in the economic discourse was, of course, a profound, if mostly unacknowledged, ideological one. It led to the gap between sociology and economics becoming wider. And such a form of economics, then, particularly as represented in the Chicago School, made unsustainable claims for the mechanism of the market, it fostered, too, a social unaccountability, one that had a profound effect, most markedly on cohesion and inequality, within society itself. A notable and by now extensive scholarship has, of course, emerged that is illustrated empirically the adverse consequences of such a model and Thomas Piketty's excellent work on inequality is among that which is most often quoted, and for good reason, Piketty's argument that without intervention wealth inequality tends to increase over time, owing to the higher rate of return on capital compared to the fruits of economic growth, and it underscores how such a trend poses significant social and economic challenges. Piccoli's early predictions of a world of low economic growth and extreme inequality are coming to pass as we witness the ongoing concentrations of economic and political power through the accumulation of capital or wealth by the very richest, with all the attendant social ills and most notably falling, so many places falling, social cohesion. It is in responding to such conditions that sociology and economics could may I suggest make a significant contribution within a re- recovered, shared normative agenda? When we compare sociology with economics as disciplines, what is perhaps most striking is the different manner in which e- inequality is considered. The origins of a sociology that emerged from Catholic social teaching, indeed so much earlier in the writings of Thomas Aquinas. Underscored how poverty and inequality were to be considered as failings of society. This was very much different from classical economics thought, which viewed inequality as, inevitib- inevi- as inevitable, as a spur. Indeed, neoliberalism and neoclassical economics championed inequality as a virtuous, a maximiser of utility and a generator of wealth, with the market envisages ensuring that everyone gets what they deserve. This epistemological orientation, combined with the hegemony of a version of economics in policy discourse and practice, can be seen as a major factor in the yawning inequality manifesting itself in so many parts of the world, with such corrosive consequences for cohesion in society, delivering as it does a version of society that is reductionist and in which the shared culture of daily life is commodified and peripheral. An alternative to such a narrow view is that of the economy as embedded in a culture that appreciates and seeks to deepen the democratic experience in an ever more inclusive way. The embedding of economy and the social and culture is a motif developed, for example, in the writings of Antonio Gramsci and Carl Polanyi. And may I suggest that such work remains relevant in our contemporary circumstances, that such ideas may be utilized to produce a forceful counterhegemonic model to contest the depoliticization, atomization and commodification endemic to neoliberal globalization. <laughs> While it is part of Polanyi's achievement to demonstrate the repercussions of domination in the economic lives of people, Gramsci was concerned to show the political domination that necessarily precipitated it. Polanyi's critique of the self-regulating market, his discernment of society's double movement, when bridged to Gramsci's theory of ideological hegemony and his notion of good sense, can supply, I believe, a vital component of what might serve as a critical theorization of globalisation, as well as the taking note of the practical strategies of resistance in the anti-politics of market ideology on which James C. Scott has made such a valuable contribution. The critical imagination of Palani, Gramsci and Scott into the globalisation debate as expounded by, for example, James Mittelman, produces valuable analytical tools, ones that maintain a primacy on political agency that critically specify the national-international distinction and make a methodological virtue of radical democratic theory. Incorporation of Polanyi's substantivism thesis into a reinvigorated economics for our times A version of economics within culture, one that emphasises the manner in which economies are embedded in society and culture, is an idea that if made popular in a revised anthropology, sociology, political science, I suggest, could be emancipatory. It is most revealing to see how, in times of austerity, a shift away from state spending on culture in some major economies occurred. And this can be seen as the further articulation and broadening of a neoliberal economic paradigm that emphasises the individual privatised experience of the economic over any collectively transcendent version of shared and economic, shared welfare and economic security. That culture and the economy within it as part of a shared public world is not accepted. In the more sophisticated form of its narrowness as to the role of culture and happy to reap the financial gains from what are called the cultural industries, the key advocates of neoliberalism are not concerned that the world of entertainment has eschewed any responsibility for enlightenment or education. That it is often characterised by monopoly in ownership and by such a fragmentation in audiences as turns active citizens into passive consumers. The choices provoke them within social policy that emerge are stark. Inclusion versus exclusion. Activity versus passivity. Democratic control versus monopoly. Freedom versus capacity. Captivity. Freedom versus captivity. Can economics then end its relationship with society and with culture be changed for the measure? I believe it can be changed. And this debate was a significant one between Australian and New Zealand economists Michael Volkerling and David Trosby, in the 1990s. In a seminal paper from 2006, The Necessity of Utopia Lessons from the Culture of Economics, as part of his debate with Professor David Trosby, an economist who had argued that economics and culture were irreconcilable due to the nature of their differing foundational assumptions, the one being hard, individualistic, and the other being soft, collectivist. Professor Michael Volkeling had addressed a contradiction that he saw as arising between changes then evident in those sciences of the mind that appeared to have wholly rejected Cartesian dualism in favor of theories of multiple intelligence and concepts of mind-body, concepts of mind-body holism, redolent of the classic age of leisure, on the one hand, and yet a set of cultural policy-making practices on the other that was not only influenced by the new consciousness, but was happy to continue functioning within the failing and destructive model of neoliberal economics. More than decades later, this debate is not over. The contradiction suggested as arising from epistemological sources that are different has not been resolved, nor does its resolution feature within the central discourse in economics of public policy. However. I believe that economics and culture can be reconciled with benefit to both. Culture and economics should not be envisioned as antagonistic as, or any clash, as Professor Trosby suggested, of the collective impulse with the individualistic impulse. Rather, as Professor Volkeling suggested, economics should be considered as a discourse within a wider cultural discourse in terms of both its origins and its application. I agree with his suggestion that the development of economics and sociology together within a shared democratic culture that has as its aim the full human capacity of the individual is the best way of ensuring the emergence of of the representative citizen, whose commonly shared interest it is the function of the state to safeguard. Volgerling argued for a reconnection of economic policy with its cultural roots to produce what he called a rich holistic discourse. While the absence of the sociological perspective as a joint influence with good economics in crucial areas of policy formulation and administered practice in Ireland, and indeed the European Union, has remained an ongoing concern. The stress on social social economy post the crisis of 2008 and and the Covid epidemic has ushered significant change. The benefits to scholarship and policy of good theoretical and policy work that represents a collaboration between theorists in sociology, economics and the social studies have given out contemporary challenges. May I want messages, ones that are obvious. Ian Goff in the London School of Economics has put it, "We require a better symmetry of economics, social policy and ecology, one combining ethics and human need theory with political economy and climate science." So from its origins, sociology has sought to be relevant by qualifying as a science, its perhaps hubristic ambition was to be included in the method and perceptions of science and specifically in the gathering of what was regarded as scientific knowledge of a measured society. I've often reflected on an intriguing hubristic moment in the debate as to the future of sociology It was an announcement in the 1960s by a president of an American philosophical conference that the abandonment of causality in science, its replacement with probability theory, when combined with the capacity for large-scale sampling and assisted, for example, by what was then iliac computer technology, had brought everybody together with probabilities, theories ascendance, causalities abandoned, and such capacity, we can, as he put it, all be scientists together now here. He announced this but I'm afraid, such hubris didn't last, nor indeed, in fairness, was it widely shared. In the same period, French sociology remained close to philosophical debate, on existentialism, neo-Marxism, and post-colonial theory. But the question endures, should economics or sociology aspire to be primarily a part of a scientific discourse as so described? And if so, are there limitations as to the scope of the reach of both disciplines, economics and sociology? There are fundamental issues as to quantification and the interpretation of human data, as dealt with by quantitative method and qualitative method. And these are qualifications and limitations as to discourse. And these were all addressed in Alvin Gurdner's Geary lecture in 1974, The Dark Side of the Dialectic Towards a New Objectivity. He had written The Coming Crisis of Sociology in 1970, given that lecture in 1974, and he died in 1978. The anthropological work of scholars such as James C. Scott attempted to capture not just the full human experience as quantified or described, or as can be measured. He stressed what was behind the mask of presented behavior and how it is structured, and how it took account of underlying, chain-challenging counter-discourses, ones that question the over-determinism of structural functionalist theories, with their insufficient allowance for diversity and agency. All of this was addressed by James C. Scott. And Scott's research on agrarian and non state societies, indigenous people, subaltern politics, and anarchism, mostly in Southeast Asia, and such societies' resistance strategies to various forms of domination has been hugely influential in the field of ethnographic fieldwork, political science more generally, and is an example of how the experience from below can provide a rich scholarship from which better policy can be designed. How might then theory meet research in sociology or economics? As Alvin Gumler put it in the lecture to which I have referred to, how might it achieve the unity of theory and practice on behalf of hope. Bridging the gap between what Charles Wright Mills in 1959 called grand theory and abstracted empiricism remains a challenge. Over 240 years ago, Immanuel Kant formulated a similar conception. Thoughts without content are empty, and perceptions without context concepts are blind. The debate on objectivity as to whether sociology must reject the possibility of objective truths and try to understand the subjective nature of sociology, of knowledge in general, and how it is bound up with the context of its times and the mind of the researcher presents an almost insuperable problem and was the subject of Alvin Gunner's classic, The Coming Crisis of Western Sociology. And when he returned to that topic in the, in the Geary Lecture, as I've said, in 1974, he was not the first sociologist to be critical of the project of objective knowledge of society. After all, it had been addressed, for example, by Theodore Adorno in his Negative Dialectics*. In the period that Damon Hannan and I were in the United States in the late 1960s, middle-range theory was developed by Robert K. Merton, who was, of course, influenced by Max Weber's work. It was and is an approach to sociological theorizing aimed at integrating theory and empirical research, emphasizing, as it does, the distinctiveness of scientific norms and the adoption of organized skepticism, It stands in contrast to the earlier grand theorising of social theory, such as functionalism. Where European sociological theory was having an influence in that same period, it was through phenomenological theory. And there have been many valuable variants drawn on the phenomenological tradition. And there is modesty in the claims of such work which would have pleased Gullner. That seminal work of 1970, The Common Crisis of Western Sociology, has stressed the necessity of the declaration of assumptions by a researcher and the near impossibility of its full achievement. His geary lecture dealt with the discourse issues involved. Can the rich insu- <coughs> I might put a question then? <coughs> Can the rich insights of the phenomenological tradition not be revisited? inform empiricism as practice, be considered and incorporated into a modern sociology? Can we create new discourse opportunities for sociology, anthropology and economics together so that the material and immaterial can work together? I believe such can be achieved, bringing not only these disciplines together, but also in that process, gain much by acknowledging the insights of literature and the arts in general. And recent work from a scholar who's making an outstanding contribution in that regard is Professor Hartmut Rosa of Jena University. His attempts to contribute such an emerging discourse, his 2018 book, Resonance, A Sociology of Our Relationship to the World, and more recently, The Uncontrollability of the World, are impressive contributions to contemporary social theory, presenting as they do a critique of modernity, as the history of a catastrophe of resonance, a reflection of loss and of efforts towards belonging. There is an increasing recognition, then, in interdisciplinary work of the importance of the concept of resonance, and a growing body of evidence suggests its importance for seeking an understanding of what might be sought as deep human fulfilment. The search for a sense of belonging is discernible too in both the popular accounts and the literature of our times. Belonging is a concept that unites classical and contemporary sociology, and indeed I suggest disciplines. Throughout its history, of course, sociology has inevitably confronted the critical issue of ideology, unavoidable in its attempts to be an an emancipatory science. And, of course, the tension between ideology and science is not one that is unique to sociology. There have been significant moments when sociology, as to its epistemology and research practices, has at times been attacked for its whiteness, sexism, and racism. And the issue is not with the methodological approach per se, but with the suggested insufficiently stated assumptions of researchers, results not shared with interviewees, and I think the causal picture being suggested that such such research might be presenting of the people being studied. Perhaps one of the seminal events in American sociology for the development of this positionality doctrine was the Moynihan report a policy document based on cross tabulations of demographic data which presented a suggested objective account of family relations in the black community and specifically the significance that might be attached to a large number of female headed households which related to poverty. The issues identified were well known to black sociologists such as Charles S Johnson, But the reaction to the Moynihan report, beginning with the black students at Cornell University, was fierce. The report being perceived as a racist attack on black people and their traditions, perceived too as a regressive work, coming as it did 20 years after Gunnar Myrdal's An American Dilemma, that far-sighted Utopian account of the obstacles to full participation in American society that American blacks faced in the 1940s. We should also, nearer to our times, consider the contested concept of society, particularly from the period of Thatcherite Britain, and its suggested death of society as a relevant concept. Indeed, as suggested also by some contemporary writers such as Nicholas Gain. Yes, society is a contested term in the literature, but it is also a central ideological concept that is intrinsic to our understanding of sociology's value. It raises such important questions as: Surely any retreat from the concept of society? must mean a retreat from the major questions with which sociologists have traditionally been concerned, leaving a vacuum that is not merely nihilistic but dangerous. What might a future sociology concerned with such basic questions concern itself with? And what would be the role of the concept of society in such a sociology? It would have to extend, I believe, itself beyond the classical forms of structure that rather than just the older ones being simply recovered. To salvage a distinctive sociology fit for the future, Gerard Delante suggests that the classical foundations of sociology, of the theory of society, needs to be rethought, especially as they relate to nature rather than abandoned. As is now becoming increasingly clear, From the Anthropocene debate, scientists in the field of earth sciences are unable to fully deal with implications of climate change and other changes in the earth. Sociologists need to become active in these developments. The future of such research, as is aimed at policy options then, is inevitably, I am suggesting, multidisciplinary, and we can all benefit from it. As to our present circumstances, We are fortunate to have valuable contributions in sociology, including from Ireland, that are adding to the growing body of international scholarly work, work that is advocating a new eco-social paradigm that offers our best hope for a sustainable, inclusive, and even emancipatory future. It is a paradigm that represents a significant and meaningful gesture towards intergenerational equity. Mariana Mazzucato's contribution to this new heterodox economics is significant, calling as it does for a reappraisal of the sources from which wealth actually emanates, what constitutes real value in the economy. And her work shows how market-led capitalism has failed, of how the privatising of state-owned enterprises and the outsourcing of essential services has left governments weakened without benefiting society or taxpayers and her positive contribution as to how economic forces can be made to serve the public interest once more to recover a discourse that is broken is so valuable. Ireland, I believe in discourse terms, is in better shape than many other countries in relation to bridging the gap between theoretical work, applied research, policy formulation and institutional delivery. Professor Mary Murphy's recent creating an eco-social welfare future is an important sociological contribution, addressing the institutional adaptations required to move towards a sustainable welfare state. The role that the National Economic and Social Council through its grounded, peer-reviewed shared work has played and continues to play is a crucial role in the institutionalisation of such a new paradigm. And through its advisory role to the Irish government, its cooperation with business and trade unions, it can help to bridge the gap between the research and the policy formulation required to achieve Ireland's sustainable economic, social and environmental development. Its recent work on just transition is one such important contribution. Sociology has a role to play in that just transition, how we will organise our society, as a transition towards a decarbonized world, do so within and adjusting as necessary. The values and beliefs we hold, the critique of the power expressed in our politics, and how we distribute the benefits of our economic system, all will influence the emergence of how people will continue to experience the consequences of climate change and biodiversity loss. As we face, then, what are interacting crises, climate change, Consequences that are at a critical level, wars, global hunger, spiralling inequality, all claiming an appropriate place for sociology in the policy discourse in our new circumstances of multiple interconnected crises, it has never been more crucial. The policy implications are also urgent. Achieving such requires a realisation that policy must be formulated and critically evaluated in such a way as to be able to tackle head-on the material and cultural contexts that are driving phenomena such as the growth of reactionary and far-right movements. This necessary development, challenging as it may be of offering economic, social and cultural policies that can improve conditions for marginalised groups and help drive the creation of a more equal and inclusive society, while confronting policies that marginalise the other can help confront the exploitative targeting of marginalised groups and their scapegoating in conditions of crisis. So then sociology has a rich legacy from which to draw inspiration. And I agree with Delante that sociology must broaden its horizons to encompass, as he put it, transformations in the very fabric of society in terms of the constitution of the individual, social relations and, importantly, the natural environment. There is need, however, for a return in political theory to a discussion on power, the articulation of its new forms, their lack of transparency and consequences of their exercise, and those with whom research is to be shared matters, the fruits of research given our shared crisis, must be shared for universal social benefit, so that we may utilise scientific insights collaboratively to address the great challenges facing humanity. The benefits of research must be shared equitably between and within nations. How we got to where we are in sociology in Ireland has a rather particular history. I have written of this in the Irish Journal of Sociology. Sociology in Ireland has been shaped both by responding to Irish conditions, it reflects United States influences on research training, and by now an increasing and rich use of European sources, which rightly reflect the aspirations of a discipline whose theories and conceptualizations must transcend national boundaries. Ireland's earlier sociological encounters include the oft-quoted Arnsberg and Kimball work, first appearing as the Irish countryman in 1937, later enhanced as family and community in Ireland in 1966, which is an applied functional analysis of life in two fictional rural communities located in County Clare. It was founded by the Limerick Rural Survey, which gave us very valuable insights into the significance of the communication networks of rural peer groups, particularly young and married males. I believe that the work of Pat McNabb in that study on that project has been underestimated. Catholic institutional dominance in the teaching of sociology retained the influence of moral philosophy. It had the result of a late secularisation of the discipline, a narrow epistemological inclination, and a marginalisation of sociology in what were becoming more materialist circumstances. Nevertheless, one cannot ignore the connection it made to European vocationalism, and indeed, the influence of the Thomism of universities, such as that of the University of Louvain. Undoubtedly, a defining and uplifting moment In awareness of the contribution that sociology might make in Ireland was the 1974 Kilkenny Conference on Poverty, which had contributions from Sister Stanislaus Kennedy and drew in the work of the late Seamus O'Keneda, another dear friend of my own and colleague. The subsequent establishment of Combat Poverty and its funding for social research drew on that conference and also on the United States President Johnson's combat poverty programs including the program Head Start. The 1970s had benefited too from the wonderful publication of excellent articles on poverty by Declan Burke Kennedy and Vincent Brown in the journal McGill all of which gave a huge encouragement and sense of excitement to what were all of us then who were new practitioners in sociology, and also to other investigative journalists. However, in the late 1970s and early 80s, led to a period of stagnation in sociology, with very few appointments at third level. The only Irish economic and sociological journal was perhaps the Economic and Social Review. But it had very few sociological articles. And those that were included were largely of the positive empirical variety. Peter Gibbon and I contributed an anthropological article on patronage and debt bondage that drew a spirited response from modernization theory enthusiasts of the history of the Irish credit system. The sociological community, at least in terms of membership of the Sociological Association of Ireland, was small. There was a suspicion attached to sociology too in those early years and indeed of those who taught it. neo was perceived as being under siege and new accounts of continental sociology were being published and they included Marxist texts and critiques of them. Sociology has always been a child of intellectual ferment and political and social conflict the events in Paris of 1968 drew an unusually even eclectic response and stood the dangers of sociology. In Paris, the splitting of the campus of one of its main universities into a number of campuses across Paris. That was a response to the riots of 1968. In Ireland, there was an eclectic event that I do recall myself. It was a period when for cadets of the Irish army, who were studying at University College Colwell, all the ologies and osophies were forbidden by their director of studies at the college. But there's Edmund Dugan and I, founding members of the USG Department of Political Science and Sociology, were summoned to discuss the situation by, with the president of the college. And it would be three years before the ologies could again be studied by those who would be in charge of the security of the state. Those of us teaching or researching sociology in those early years were doing so in conditions of flux that would, in a particular way, I think, lead to the hegemony of quantification and research and the loss of opportunities for qualitative research. The exclusion of the sociological perspective and imagination from the main centers of policy in Ireland is not accidental. Its experience of arrival in Irish universities was a controversial one. For example, Professor Joostas O'Hadon was one of the very few academics to raise questions about the adoption of the 1965 Freeze Report, which had the effect of moving the scarce-funded research and sociology to the Economic and Social Research Institute rather than the universities. At University College Galway, by way of response, Professor Laura Nulon of economics, Brenda Marquet of geography, Yusuf Sehadon, and Edmund Dugan of sociology and political science established an interdisciplinary social science research centre in 1965, which sought modest funding from different sources, and part of which was Professor P.J. Trudy and myself. There were alternative models for institutionalised funding of sociological research, over which Professor Geary's initiative for the SRI had won out in 1960. These included Moetana Project for Rural Sociology and the initiatives that were then underway within the Agricultural Institute. Putting it bluntly, sociological research in Ireland for the main part, insofar as it would have an influence on policy, was captured by positivism in theory and quantification as to method. And it sought to live to not entirely at a great distance from the hand of government. I have referred to Carol Polanyi's Great Transformation, that seminal work which outlined the dystopia of marketized society within the prism of economic liberalism some 80 years ago, it remains a text, I believe, that is as relevant as ever in helping to explain how the embedding of market forces within the self regulating market has had disastrous consequences for cohesion. Polanyi's work reminds us that the public work must be seen as a space of contestation, a space that sets that which is, un- that which is democratic in tension with that which is unaccountable. And we've had, as I have said, recent outstanding interdisciplinary work. That work includes Talmut Rosa that I have referred to, but also Tim Jackson, Ian Goff, Anna Coote, as well as Irish scholars such as Mary Murphy, and as well as in geography and across the disciplines, the outstanding work on Africa of Professor Patrick is on on, African, on changes in Africa from below. There are happily many, many more whose work attempts to analyse and harmonise links across disciplines into a coordinated coherent whole so that we may merge consciousness, especially with regard to the existential crisis of climate and biodiversity and within an institutional framework. This is work that acknowledges what might be regarded as little less than a species crisis which we face one that requires connections to be made across the social subjects, silos to be broken down, a rebalancing of ethics, ecology and economy within an activist state that recognises the natural resource limits of our vulnerable planet. As to interdisciplinary collaboration, many younger scholars and a limited number of policymakers, including international organisations such as the OECD, have made cautious steps towards a more pluralist approach in policy making. They now recognise that the discipline of economics is not diminished, but rather is enhanced by partnerships with the other disciplines that are dealing with the social world. There is an ever-growing recognition of the reality that the source of its richest work has been the envisaging of a political economy embedded in a culture of a shared society, that drew on moral instincts. The social disciplines have nothing to lose by working imaginatively in what Edward Said called the interstices of subjects between their disciplines by the encompassing of the concerns of sociology, history, or anthropology. By cooperating, everything is made stronger. New partnerships between sociology and social history and social anthropology are mutually beneficial. Neither can sociology dispense with scholarship from broader philosophical sources in the interrogation of the foundational assumptions of disciplines that so often go unquestioned, question. And this applies to sociology as much as it, do, as it does to other disciplines. Surely it is necessary to know and to understand the ontology and epistemology that underpin models and methodologies that have been so influential over the past 40 years and which have determined the lives of so many. Philosophy can assist in the reconsideration of ethics and ethical dimensions into many areas. Public accountability, war, trade, debt and dependency, to name but a few. There is, I suggest, a strong argument that sociology in partnership on such projects could also benefit from a restored relationship where assumptions are declared and understood, as Gulner suggested, with an, a shared moral concern of a normative orientation, with economics, such as is offered in heterodox economics, including ecological economics, as well exemplified in the work of scholars such as Kate Roberts and Tim Jackson and Marianne Mazzucato and Ian Gough. May I conclude, dear friends, by offering, as a challenging project for consideration to such interdisciplinary work as I have been advocating, what I call globalisation from below. I referred earlier globalisation and how the critical integration of ideas from Polanyi, Gramsci and Scott might inform debates on a fair model of globalisation. James Mittelman has outlined this in his book, Globalisation Syndrome and such work as his offers a framework for such a project. The uncritical acceptance of globalisation as an inevitable aspect of modernization, its promotion as a panacea for economic and social development, with little critique as to distributional, socio-cultural, ecological effects, functioned as part of the theoretical assumptions for what is a failing and failed paradigm. This globalization from above allowed for the financialization of the global economy and so much unaccountability that followed from that, with all its distorted power effects, its opaque character, it's absence of transparency and accountability, as I've said. A more complete understanding of globalization requires us to understand how it is being experienced, what is happening on the street, as I have put it in a previous book. As I, what forms of economics is being invoked to justify it? In his use of the concept globalization from below, James Mittelman in his Globalisation Syndrome, this is a text I believe that remains some two decades after its publication, a touchstone text, advocated, listening to the voices, as he put it, those affected by this phenomenon, including those who resisted and those who are, are adversely impacted by it. Middleman was among the first to present a holistic, multi-level analysis of globalisation, connecting the economic to the political and cultural. Meckleman's findings, drawn mainly from Eastern Asian Southern Africa to globalisation hubs, so-called, underscore the importance of being open to transnational field research and understanding the full human experience. I've already referred to James C. Scott's work, which has been groundbreaking in giving agency to the hidden discourses of defence that are employed by those from below and by peasants. The Polanyan perspective that Mittelman drew on provides a template for studying globalisation impacts. The systemic changes that generate discontents, the three analytical frameworks Mittelman draws on, those of Gramsci, Polanyi, and Scott, do overlap and they deepen our understanding of resistance politics and may, I believe, would benefit, be integrated to sharpen the theoretical perspective. The way in which an absence of critique of globalisation might be challenged, was also considered by Richard Falk of Princeton University Centre of International Studies in his 1997 paper, Resisting Globalisation from Above Through Globalisation from Below. In that prescient conclusion to his paper, Falk suggested that a reconciliation between global market operations, the well-being of peoples and the carrying capacity of the earth would be most salient political challenges at the dawn of the new millennium that was 1997. i believe that a project such as addressing globalization from below can pattern and strengthen responses to the interacting crises of our time including global hunger and that they can strengthen democracy and this indeed was a theme of one of my papers at the world food program world food forum recently in rome I also spoke in Dhaka, as well as in Rome, of a new anthropology that was emerging in Africa. And anthropology have been assisted, as I've said, by Professor Paul Carmody's work, that as a tool of evaluation and initiation, can extend and deepen democracy. Such a project as globalization from below, through anthropology, can challenge the rise of unaccountable un- un- policies and development initiatives, controlled by elites, which have been having such a major source in the corrosive disenfranchisement and failing cohesion. That is so manifest. North and South, one that has resulted, of course, and spoken about so long ago by Jürgen Habermas, in 1975, for example, in the European Union as a legitimation crisis. What we are now seeing emerge from what is often termed the South is a range of movements that are, while not perhaps using the term, social globalization from below. They are projects that can potentially assist democracy and induce some of the damage that an unaccountable and criticized globalization from above has delivered on institutions and on people's lives. Globalization from below can also draw on post dependency sociology. Perhaps such as that brilliantly expounded by South American scholars such as Carlos Lopez. That work demonstrates how a better symmetry between ethics, economy and ecology can be achieved. How a renewal of life on our planet can be realised through transformational change and ethical development policy. In this new discourse of the South, Ireland has a special welcome. One that should not be squandered in its own right and as a European Union member, with the opportunity of being abridged to a refurbished multilateralism. In recent times, Irish sociologists then have charted the course of a country undergoing profound social and economic changes. I believe the best days for an Irish sociological contribution are emerging, that the current community of sociologists well-placed to make a significant contribution in partnership with the other disciplines, including economics, to a changing Ireland, and that it can do so and will do so with a theoretically strong economics. There has been a new lease of energy amongst Irish sociologists, a new sense of solidarity, and sociology in Ireland has become international, attracting sociologists from all over the world, both in terms of positions, contributions to the Irish Journal of Sociology, and participation in workshops and conferences. Sociology has become established throughout the third level sector, although it is deeply concerning to hear of the decline in numbers studying sociology at third level, modules and courses being cancelled or merged, and even entire departments under threat. New partnerships with Interalia, Philosophy, History, and Anthropology can help to stem the tide. On time, the advocacy of a, a narrowed, misplaced functionalism that has passed or inevitably will. May I stress that a healthy sociological contribution will require a space of epistemological freedom in our institutes of learning, by which I mean staff and students being encouraged to think critically. University teachers given freedom to teach pluralistically and fundamentally, free to critique an orthodox capitalist system that is underregulated. Unaccountable as to its consequences for society, that exercises its power, for example, through occasional actions of the dysfunctional and dated Bretton Woods institutions, seeking a capacity to punish without explanation or thought as to consequences very often if a sovereign state strays from the neoliberal course. What sociology has been and what it can be are largely determined by what its practitioners are themselves allowed and encouraged to be. And the sociological imagination is such a valuable perspective that it is only by understanding our shared and entangled histories, our shared vulnerabilities, our hopes that may have been dashed, our successes and our awaiting utopias that we can hope to be better prepared to meet the social and sociological challenges of the future. The challenges to the discipline of sociology that call for moral courage will arise in facing new forms of inequality and injustice, that will have continuities and connections with the past. But like them, we must remind ourselves our never inevitabilities. Sociology has a key part to play in providing a moral foundation to economy and society, as E.P. Thompson and James Scott so powerfully advocated recovering possibilities, and unearthing the rich promise of a more moral and ethical economy and society. Such utopianism is as central to understanding the work of Keynes as it is to Thomas More, or later to Robert Owen, Charles Fourier, Henri Saint-Simon, and Etienne Cabet. Has it ever been more necessary, I ask? Has there ever been a more appropriate time to envisage together our future utopia? Notwithstanding the distance we find ourselves from achieving such, not just sociologists, but all of us must dream, dare to dream it. Sociology can and should be more directly involved in claiming what futures might be, should be, and in materialising these claims via expansive engagement with other actors. In being a future-oriented discipline, sociology must be led to how the world is changing, And how we are taking the world into us be it in our yearning for peace or our collapse and failure into war and what should be questioned but is wearing the mask of inevitability is absorbing us wasting our lives sociology and economics must not be afraid to call into question previous certainties asserted neither are limited to any one context or time or their contemporary self-understanding we are of the world. It is both a daunting but also an exciting time in which to be a sociologist or economist. And I know that all practitioners, whether in academia, practice or policy, are anxious to play their part in the advancement of what are, at their best, as shared disciplines, ones which can carry the emancipatory potential to create progressive societies founded on core human values of equality, shared capacity, fairness, and decency. Emancipation is to critical theory what goodness was to Platonism. It is grounded in, but not limited to reason, as Alvin Govner said in that lecture of 1974. While the trajectory in which society has been traveling for four decades now has resulted in a period when in so many places and ways, the concept of society has been questioned and redefined pejoratively. when the public space in so many countries has been lost or commodified. Our recent experience of pandemic has made possible the galvanizing of support for a paradigm shift towards seeking an exit from the worst aspect of a destructive extreme individualism, the taking of a path that offers the capacity of achieving transcendence, meaning, resonance, even an encounter with beauty, in all its senses of shared life. Sociologists then can join with other disciplines in encouraging the merging of the consciousnesses of ecology, human need, dignity, respect for sources of truth and consolation, reasoned and revealed and in doing so sociology working collaboratively with the other social sciences crafts can yield its greatest achievement today, generation a catalytic atmosphere that can enable a new harmonious paradigm of existence based on inclusivity, equality, sustainability to come to be our shared experience. It is not only past time to break the silences that mask what not only has failed, but is inadequate for survival, sustainability, democracy, democracy itself. It is a time full of promise for scholarly cooperation, in achieving this, the Economic and Social Research Institute, for whom I thank again for inviting me to give this lecture, contributes an ever more promising atmosphere, just as it did when it welcomed the arrival of Dr. Damien Hannan's groundbreaking work on migration all those years ago.